I'd like to, to pray right now that God would speak to you, and it wouldn't be just my words, because if I just speak to you, you know, you're just getting information, you're just learning something, but if, if the Spirit quickens your heart to hear what he's saying, you know, that's when the transformation happens. So let's pray. So dear Lord, I'm not qualified, I don't know what I'm doing, right? But you know what you're doing, and the same Spirit of grace that adopted us in as sons and daughters, as heirs and co-heirs with Christ, I pray that you would just be here and dwell in this place, and your anointing would just speak to us about what I have to share today. You know me pray. Amen. Um, so the title of my message is called Give It a Rest. Give It a Rest. Um, so let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. Um, and this is such a powerful scripture once you understand it and once you understand what it's saying here. So uh, let's go through it in, in verse 9, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. Uh, and all my scriptures are going to be up on the screen for the most part. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Now that scripture just makes you want to shout, right? No, it doesn't. Um, in order to understand this passage, I'm going to teach you about the Sabbath and the history of the Sabbath and, uh, and kind of explain through the scriptures of what God set in place for us today throughout time, as you'll see here. Now, whenever you became a Christian, did your Bible come with an instruction booklet, right? Who got, when you were saved, you got that instruction booklet on how to read the Bible. I didn't get it. If you got it, let me know because I really want to read that. Um, but I want to I just kind of share how the Bible's structured with you in case you don't know um, how, you know, how it's structured. So, um, the Bible is a collection of 66 books, you know, it's written over 1,500 years by 40 different people, um, you know, and there's two sections to it. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, testament is a fancy word for covenant, and covenant's a fancy word for promise, right? So, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, but between those, th those two testaments, there's actually three covenants, that we have to be aware of. Uh, the first covenant is with a single man, and his name is Abraham, right? God promised him that through his seed, the whole world would be blessed. And then the second covenant is between a nation. That's the covenant between Moses and Israel, right? And that one has um, 613 commands. It's a, a lot of, if you do, then I will. If you don't, do, if you don't then I will punish, right? Um, if you think there was just 10 commandments, that's the table of contents, right, for all 613 commands. That's a lot, right? Now, those two covenants, that's the Old Testament in a nutshell, right? And then we go on to the third covenant. That's not just with one man, Abraham, not with the nation Israel, but with the world, right? That's for everybody. And that's the covenant that we currently live under, and that covenant can be summed up in one word, that's Christianity, right? So there's a little backstory, right? So understanding multiple covenants matters because different things apply to different covenants, right? It's everything that happens under the Old Testament, the Old Testament sets the stage for what Christ does. It foreshadows who Christ is, what he does, what he did for us, right? What he had to do. You know, um, I'm not saying the Old Testament isn't important for us today because good luck understanding Hebrews if you don't know what Leviticus says, right? Uh, but you have to be careful when you're applying Old Testament principles to your life. If you're not filtering it through the New Testament, you're, you're probably going to be trying to apply something for somebody else that doesn't apply to you, that's under a different covenant. And uh, nobody explains that to you whenever you first start. So if you're a new Christian, there you go. Pay attention to the New Testament with the Old Testament as a backstory, right? So um, I'm going to go through these Old Testament passages you're going to see on the, on the 
on the slides here. Um, don't look at what it's actually saying. Look at what it's pointing to. Try to see if you can connect the dots to what Christ has done for us, right? What does it foreshadow? And now, some of us veterans know these, like the sacrificial, sy- sacrificial system was foreshadowing, you know, Christ's death on the, on the cross. That would be a sacrifice for sin. The presence dwelling in the temple was just foreshadowing that we would be temples and the Holy Spirit would dwell within us here. Uh, but what is the, sh- the Sabbath foreshadow? Do we ever really stop and think about the Sabbath? Because it's in there for a reason, it, but it, it's not in there just for the Old Testament. It's in there to show something about Christ, right? So let's go through kind of the timeline starting at creation and go through the Old Testament and then see what it tells us about about our salvation because it's so important. Sabbath is one of the most important things to understand if you're going to understand who Christ is and what he did. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1, um, actually chapter 2. Um, you know you know the story in, in the beginning God created heavens and the earth. Day 1, day 2, day 3, all the way to day 6 he creates man. Day 7, what does he do? He rests, right? He creates the Sabbath. Starting in in verse 1 of chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, don't you find it interesting that the first thing God did, after he made everything, after he created the earth, he created man, he established the Sabbath. I mean, the Sabbath predates sin. It came in before sin was ever introduced, right? Um, it m- makes you think it's kind of important that the power of Sabbath has been at work ever since we've been around. Um, it's easy to get caught up in the fact that God rested, you know, and, and as much as I love a, a nap on Sunday, um, that's not what the Sabbath is about. It, it's it, when you focus on the rest that God did because of, you know, he needed to rest, you lose, you lose something in the translation here. So let's keep following the timeline here. Let's go to, uh, to um, Exodus 16. We see Mount Sinai. Now, I'm not going to read this passage, but basically the, the Hebrews were told, hey, gather manna on the six days. On the seventh day, don't gather any. Gather double on the sixth, right? Um, it's something given to them in the wilderness, right? But what I do want you to, to, to notice is that it does say the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Spoiler alert, that comes important later, right? Um, now let's go to the Ten Commandments. Um, let's look at Exodus 20. I'm going to read this to you here. I'm sure some of you learned this in Sunday school, right? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and on and on. Uh, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Uh, so again, the Ten Commandments, I'm trying to go through this, correct, because... Uh, well, I'm, I've got to do this in 35 minutes. So, um, so let's get, skip ahead to uh, chapter 31 here. Um, you know, the, the Ten Commandments is just the table of contents. This is where the Sabbath is established within the law here. Starting in Exodus 31, verse 13. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between you and uh, me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does not work, does any work on it, the soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, when God says... Above all, 
right? That means it's important. Um, notice here, though, if you work on the Sabbath, you're cut off from your people, right? You're put to death. Um, now, the Sabbath comes up a lot in Leviticus and Numbers. I'm not going to read those to you because they're boring books. I love, love them. You know, they're in the Bible, you know, whatever. But, uh, but they're, they're just dry, right? But let's skip to Deuteronomy 5, and that's the end of the law here because the Ten Commandments are, are reiterated. Right? They're in there again, but one of them is reworded. One of them is changed. It's evolved towards a purpose, right? And I guess you can, you can guess which one here. And this is when the true purpose of Sabbath begins to take shape. So let's read in Deuteronomy 5. Uh, starting in verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, I'm going to skip ahead because it's all the same. And verse 15 is when it changes here. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, why does Exodus and Deuteronomy say something different when they're this, the Ten Commandments, right? Is the Bible, did, you know, did they make a mistake when they wrote it out? No, it's because Revelation is progressive, right? God reveals more and more about himself over time in your own personal relationship as well. You learn more and more about God as you journey along in Christianity. But in the Bible, too, Adam had no idea who Jesus was. Moses had no idea who Jesus was. But everything in the Bible points towards that. You know, Revelation it happens over time. And the Sabbath commands before this were meant for people that were wandering in the wilderness, right? That's when, when Mount Sinai happened. They weren't a people that were, were comfortable. They weren't a people that were already established. They were, they were in the wilderness. Now this new Ten Commandments are for people that have, have built a land for themselves. And th if they don't remember what God had done for them, if they don't look back, then they'll forget the purpose of Sabbath, Right? And that's what we're trying to do today. So, um, you know, he, he was giving them, you know, the what and the how, but here in Deuteronomy, he begins to open up the why. The what is, you know, it's a day started in creation. How do we keep it? It's a, it's a we, we do it by doing no work, right? Um, and then here God is to give the why. It's so that they could remember that they were once slaves, and now they're free, right? They don't do any work on the Sabbath. Now, Throughout the prophets, you know, we could, there's a whole lot of scriptures in here. Everybody in the prophets talks about it. Um, but the last passage in the Old Testament I want to touch on is a passage in Ezekiel uh, because it sheds light on why it was so important for Israel to keep the Sabbath. Um, this wasn't just God laying a law out so that one day, you know, he could say, gotcha, you know. It's, he laid out the law because he, he was doing something deeper, right? He was, he was creating a masterpiece, and Israel was the paintbrush, right? And so they had to behave a certain way. They had to do certain things so that he could, he could set the stage for Christ. So in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 10 through 13, So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. So again, God distinguishes the Sabbath from the law, right? It transcends the law. Um, you know, and, and it's easy to see why, you know, that it's, you know, I, I skipped ahead. I'm sorry. See, I'm not a preacher, right? I, I have to stick with my notes here, and then, and then you know, it's just, it's just fun. So, and the problem was I didn't italicize this scripture, right? So, um, <laughs> so uh, you know, like, here we go. This is just uh, 
man, I just skipped ahead. So let's see here. Let's just go with it, you know? I don't need notes. So, because I know this, and I, I'm just relying on my notes, and I need to just listen to the Spirit and what he's saying to me. Right? So the prophets, they warned Israel over and over again. You know, he said, you know, I am the Lord who sanctifies them. That means, you know, God is the God. You know, Sabbath was all about sanctification. It wasn't about keeping a law. The law isn't what was in place with the Sabbath right here. And he's, notice he says, as a sign. Uh, and, that's, and that's not the first time. Every time he brings up the Sabbath, it's a sign. He's pointing to Christ, right? Now, um, let's see here. Now, in case you didn't know, there's the exile. I might have skipped the exile. Nope, the exile's next. So, um, it's so important that Israel keeps the Sabbath, right, that they were sent to exile because of the Sabbath. Um, I'm not going to read the scripture that's up there, but this is just further importance of the Sabbath, right? They didn't give the, the land the rest that God had demanded in, when he set it up in the law, and they were sent to the, to the Sabbath so that the land could get the 70 years that they missed. Um, now, that's all I want to talk about on the Old Testament. I want to move ahead to the New Testament, right? And there's a gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's about 400 years, and in that gap, we see the development of the tradition of the elders, right? Now, what is the tradition of the elders? Um, you see Jesus has a good conversation about it in the next one here. You can skip to the next one. Um, um, the tradition of the elders is like the rules that you make to keep you from breaking the real rules. So um, those of you with like teenage sons, the real rule may be you want to keep your son sexually pure. So you set up all these sub rules, right? Like you, you leave the door open when you're, you're on the computer in your room, uh, you know, leave the lights on and the door open when there's a girl in your room. I mean, don't even bring a girl in your room. You know, it, it, those, aren't the, those aren't the rules, right? That's not the real rule. The real rule is keeping them uh, pure, right? But you create all these extra things that go along to keep them from, from breaking the real rule, right? You don't even put them in the situation where they could get to breaking the rules, right? And that's kind of what the tradition of the elders was. Um, it, they're these traditions that weren't really part of the law. They, weren't, they were just added on by the Pharisees over this time, right? They were, they were there to keep you from actually breaking the law. So they took the law and they took it further, um, you know, and this is a great interaction in Matthew 15. I'm not going to read it. You can read it on your own time, right? Um, that shows exactly why, why Jesus didn't like these traditions, because you could use these traditions that weren't actually the law to actually break another law, because they created all these loopholes, um, you know, and they created all these traditions about the Sabbath, right? Because they had been sent into exile because of the Sabbath. Um, because they had broken the Sabbath. So it would make sense that they'd create all these things that were added on and made the Sabbath more of a burden than the blessing that it was supposed to be. Um, now, in the tradition of the elders, picking any kind of food was forbidden, but it wasn't forbidden in the law, right? You just couldn't work your fields. Um, um, but, you know, because if you forget, forbid people from picking food at all, then you don't have to worry about them working their fields and, you know, taking it too far. Um, so in Mark chapter 2, Jesus, who knows the law, you know, because he wrote it, um, picks some fruit from, fruit, some heads of grain from, some, uh, from, from the wheat, right? Uh, and of course, the, the, the Pharisees were always following Jesus, always trying to catch him in something. And, and they come behind him and they, you know, they raise a fuss um, because their tradition forbid the picking of, of fruit and of food. Um, so as usual, Jesus, you know, he takes them to task. He tells them, you know, hey, you, you don't know what you're talking about. But he says something revolutionary in verse 27. He says, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now this particular story is so important that it's in all 
three of the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's so important that it's repeated three times. The Sabbath was never meant to be something the Israelites observed out of duty, but it was supposed to be a gift for them. You see, the, the Pharisees had it backwards. They thought that they had been created for the Sabbath. In other words, that God had created this master-slave re- relationship with us, you know, creating us for his pleasure, right? Creating us to cater to his every whim, and just one of those whims was the Sabbath. So we had to, you know, he tells us to jump, we ask how high. And But God never desired the master-slave relationship that they had turned Judaism into, right? He didn't create us just to keep the Sabbath and to keep the laws. He created the Sabbath and laws for us, to protect us, to bless us, right? And then let's lastly look at Colossians 2, and we'll close the history books here. I know it's a, we're getting through it, right? Uh, but let's look at Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are the shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ, right? So everything's, you know, you've got, we've gone through the Sabbath. So let's, let's kind of put it together here and, uh, and explain what the purpose of the Sabbath was and is. So if the Sabbath is a shadow, what's the reality that we find in Christ, right? Um, so let's, let's kind of go through the timeline again, but let's, let's look at it through God's eyes. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything in it. He created us. He set aside the Sabbath for us, right, to foreshadow what was to come. And then, you know, he handed the keys of the earth to us. He gave dominion over the earth to us in Genesis 1, chapter, er, chapter 1, verse 26. And that, you know, in hindsight, it looks like a terrible idea for him to do, but he gave it over to us anyways, right? And so what did we do with those keys? We handed it over to death, sin, and the grave, right? And so from our perspective, God has two had two, uh, two options, right? He could either destroy us and destroy humanity and start over again, and he would be totally just in doing that because we broke relationship with him, right? Um, or he could go back on his word when he gave us dominion. You know, he handed over the keys to us. He could just, you know, take them back, say, you know what, we'll just kind of, we'll just, you know, gloss over this and we'll just move on. But he wouldn't then be a God worthy of worship because he wouldn't hold us to a standard, right? There would be no absolute morality, right? Um, but luckily for us, there was a third choice that we didn't know about, a solution to this problem, right? Um, all that had to happen was for a human to live a blameless life and then die for everybody else's sins. But there's a problem with that too because now that sin isn't in the world and we've broken relationship, every human being after that would be scarred by sin, right? Um, Because of the sin of one man, as Romans tells us, humanity would now be born with a sinful nature. So there was really only one option that God had, you know. Luckily, he's foresaw all this, right? Before he created everything, you know, he's the God who knows the end of the, from the beginning. That's Isaiah 50. Um, he declares the end from the beginning. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, there was a lamb who was slain, right? So God determined the perfect time to interject into humanity, and he came as a being who was both fully God and able to live the blameless life, and fully man, able to take dominion back from the grave. But during that time between creation and when he would interject in our timeline, he set up all these signs, right? He laid clues to what his plan was. He gave us the laws, which showed us that there is absolute morality, right? There's a standard that we can never hope to live up to. He set up the sacrificial system, which would teach us that only death pays for breaking God's laws, right? He set apart a nation, showing that there would be a group of people that would be set apart as unto himself. And then when the time was perfect, Christ came for us, right? Both fully God and fully man, able to take dominion back through his humanity and live blamelessly through his deity. And when he rose, he established what the Sabbath foreshadowed. 
a salvation that was given to us. See, the Sabbath was a salvation, was a shadow of a salvation where works are forbidden. You see, the covenant between God and Moses represented the six days of work. You could work six days. You could work for your salvation. If you wanted forgiveness from your sin, you had to bring a sacrifice, right? You had to make the amends. You had to avert God's wrath by the shedding of an animal's blood by the high priest. But when Christ died, he fulfilled that covenant and wrote a new one in his blood where we now live in the Sabbath, where the work has already been done, a time where salvation doesn't come from our sacrifices, doesn't come from our law-keeping, but from the finished work of Christ. There is a Sabbath for the people of God, and now we rest in the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a a shadow of that salvation where works aren't just worthless, they're forbidden. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not by work so that no one can boast. All our striving, all our self-righteousness that we could boast in is as filthy rags, right? It's Christ who became righteousness for us. And I know that what some of you are thinking, like, oh, great, another message about, you know, we're saved by grace, right? Um, You know, how anticlimactic, right? But because if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've heard a thousand of these messages where, you know, you don't have to work, you don't have to earn your salvation. You'll probably never hear a sermon from a pastor that says you'll be saved by works. I mean, unless you're in the Roman Catholic Church and they're talking about the sacraments, right? But that's because we all say that we're, we say that we're saved by grace, right? But saying that we're saved by grace is one thing, but believing it is another thing. That's a whole different game, right? Let's go back to the scripture in Hebrews 4 that we read at the beginning, and starting in verse 9. There then remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Now, if I were to stop here, this would be a great message about resting and everything like that here in grace, and we don't earn our salvation, and you would go home thinking that we wasted our time, right? But the author didn't finish his thought there, so we aren't going to. Let's look at verse 11. <clears throat> Let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Now, we have to figure out who, who the, you know, what it means by their example. Who is they? Um, they, when you look at Hebrews chapter 3, is starting in verse 7. Through the rest of the chapter, he, he talks about how the people of Israel were led out of Egypt. They were led out of Egypt and into the wilderness, and they came right up to the promised land. They were right there, and they sent in the 12 spies, and, you know, and, but they didn't believe that God could save them, right? And so ch- verse 19 of chapter 3 says that we were, they were not able to enter into the rest. They were promised because of their unbelief. And then, and then the writer of Hebrews, through the first couple of verses here, they, he ties it together with our salvation, right? And he warns us that just as their unbelief kept them, from, kept them wandering in the wilderness and out of the promised land, so our unbelief will keep us from entering into God's rest, right? Now, how can we say we're saved by grace and not actually believe it? It's the same way the Pharisees, you know, did when they created the tradition of the elders, right? They were, they, they were, they were, uh, they created these traditions of the elders, this whole set of rules that were just made up. They weren't real rules. With it, they had a form of law, lawfulness, right? They had a form of the law, but they were denied the power of the law because they scoffed at the lowly. They drifted further and further from the heart of Christ because they looked at what they could do. They looked at who they were instead of it looking at the law and how it's, you know, it's keeping them safe and, and everything like that here, they made it into a burden. And that's one of the re- biggest reasons why there's this tension between the Pharisees and Christ, because the law was set up to foreshadow him. The Sabbath was set up to foreshadow him. And when they distorted that and they ruined it, right, that 
irritated him. And that's why you always see him calling him like brood of vipers and hypocrites and everything like that. And it's great. And I love when that happens, right? And, but some of us have created our tradition of the elders, right? Uh, some of us are bearing a yoke that's not easy. And we're bearing a burden that's not light. Uh, some of us are tired from our Christianity because we made it about our salvation. It's about, it's stopped being about his salvation, about his work. And it's become about our work. It's about our holiness, what we've done, you know, right? And we start making these Christian tick marks, you know, like this holiness to-do list. Like, oh, I read my Bible for 30 minutes today. Mark that off. Oh, I read, I prayed 30 minutes today. Mark that off, right? Um, You know, I came to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night, and I came to prayer, and I came on Wednesday night, right? Just all these check marks, right? And then we start volunteering. We join the worship band, right? We, we do all, we help usher. We, you know, we, we start sharing our faith on Facebook and on and on it goes. And we're, and you know, while a, a Christian does this, a Christian does that, right? These, these are things to do, right? And, and while all of those things are good to do, I'm not saying not to do them. I'm saying that none of them merit any kind of righteousness to you. None of them, not a single one. And for some of us, that's fine. We do this out of the genuine love of Christ. You know, we do this, you know, some of us, we see this unpayable debt that we can't repay. Um, You know, just keep your eyes on Christ and just try to be more like him every day, right? But for most of us, we either start to look too proudly at ourselves, right, and what we can do for Christ, or we look at what we can't do for Christ, and the condemnation starts setting in, right? Um, when we keep our tick marks or when we we look at the tick marks that we can't keep right we start relying on ourselves we have a form of godliness but we deny its power right and and the power of christianity christianity is grace you know um because christ before christ all our righteousness is as filthy rags but when we're tempted to measure our own self-righteousness against our neighbor instead of against christ it's easy right because you know susie who sits down the road from me sorry if anybody's named susie um you know, your righteousness looks pretty good because, you know, I hear she has a drug problem, so let's pray for, you know, God will touch her, minister to her, whatever. So you look good but besides Susie, but before God, there's no difference between, the only difference between you and someone like Adolf Hitler is the grace of God. That's the only difference, is that you happen to be saved by grace, and now you've been adopted in. You know, there's no difference before Christ comes into your life. So what's the difference after? It's that God keeps giving you grace and more abundantly, right? What did you do to earn your salvation? The answer is nothing. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Uh, you know, new Christians don't usually struggle with this because they know what kind of mess they are, right? That's the whole reason they came to Christ. Um, because, you know, it's easy for a new Christian to believe that God just accepts them as they are. But us long-timers, us people that have been Christians for a while, it's hard for us because we feel the weight of the obligation of mercy. We feel the weight of the obligation of other people looking at us and us looking at other people, right? And so we get, begin to look inwards instead of looking upwards, you know, to, so that, and we just, we just get it done, right? We just do our holiness thing. We, we're the salt and light. We just do it, right? But when we, when what we do for Christ is no longer the fruit of our salvation, but the root of our salvation, and we think we start to think that God thinks a little, little higher of us, right? Because of what we do for Him. But Paul Washer, uh, who I, I love to listen to, if you've never heard Paul Washer, look him up. He has a great quote about this that puts our self righteousness into perspective. The cross is not a sign of our great worth, but our great depravity. That we were so evil that the only way we could be saved is by God's Son being crushed under the full force of God's wrath that was due us. It's silly to rely on our self righteousness, right? You were born again, not of yourself, but by the Spirit, right? That's John 3. It's God who is the author and the finisher 
of your faith. When we start to look to ourselves, to our own righteousness, you're no longer resting in the Sabbath that God has created for you in, in your salvation, right? You're t- trying to take a few steps back into the six days when work was allowed, right? You're trying, to, he, he, you're trying to do something that you're not supposed to do anymore, and it leads to either condemnation or self-righteousness. Uh, you know, the author of Hebrews, after he goes kind of through this, he brings it up again in chapter 6 here, and starting in verse 4 here. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, um, if you know anything about Arminians and Calvinists, you know, Arminians would look at this, this scripture and say, look, you can send your way out of your salvation, right? And Calvinists would just move the problem and say, well, you know, they weren't the elect anyways. They, didn't, they weren't saved in the first place. They didn't lose their salvation. They just weren't really saved, right? But both of them fail to understand the context of the book of Hebrews, the entire book. See, when the book of Hebrews was written, the Christians were so persecuted that they were looking to go back to Judaism. They were looking to return to a works-based faith, right? And so the writer had two purposes for the, this book. Is the first was to show that we had a mediator, a high priest, and that there's a better covenant than the old covenant, right? But the second was to warn the Christians who were looking to go back to, you know, uh, that they were in grave danger by trying to go back to the works of the law. Um, it's because they were trying to work in this age of Sabbath, this age of promised rest for God's people. And remember what the law said about Jews who profane the Sabbath. Their soul would be cut off from their people, right? Uh, they would be cast out. You cannot lose your salvation, but you may be able to work your way out of salvation, right? Uh, based, on these burst, based on these scriptures, right? Uh, by profaning the Sabbath that Christ purchased for you, by looking at yourself here. Now, I don't, you know, I know this is in reference to leaving Christianity to Judaism, but what that means is there's some kind of line, and I don't know where that line lies. But I'm here to warn you, right? Because what is required for your salvation? Faith in Christ's finished work. But when you start to look at your own works, when you start to take merit for your own righteousness, you're placing your faith out of Christ and into yourself. You're creating, creating Jesus as just a contributor to your salvation instead of the source, right? And I don't know where to draw the line of where, you know, where's too far that you've gone into works, right? All I'm saying is that there's a line, and I would say as far away as it from possible, right? Uh, I mean, this has been a problem since the beginning of Christianity. Um, Paul had to tell the Galatians that they were cursed by God if they tried to work their way out of salvation here in Galatians 1.9, that they had created a false gospel, right? They're turning to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all by leaving the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, right? The Acts 15, the first council ever in Christianity is about this issue. Do we believe in a, a salvation that's based solely on grace, or are there some works that have to happen, right? And you know what they ended up deciding in Acts 15, 19 is, therefore my judgment, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And it's still a problem for us today here, thousands of miles away, thousands of years later, right? Um, because as Americans, we're conditioned on how to deal with the debt. You pay it off, right? Uh, you know, we take a lot of pride in those three little numbers by our name that tell creditors how if they can lend us money, right? Um, but God is sitting here saying, you don't owe me anything because I already paid it, right? I have never had to pay my dad back for a Christmas present he's bought me, right? Um, and when you treat your salvation as a debt instead of a gift, you become a slave when God is calling us to be sons and daughters because a borrower 
is a slave to the lender. He created a Sabbath for our soul by paying it with his blood. So we should therefore make every effort to enter into that rest. So that's about the Sabbath here. But what does that mean for us? How do we, how do we enter that rest? How do we stay in it, right? Because it's nice to hear another, another sal- a sermon about, you know, you don't work for your salvation. But what does that mean? What can we take away from this? First, we have to live out our salvation in humility. James 4, 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What do we say by grace, right? So it seems like pride and grace are opposites. They are enemies of each other, right? And I don't know about you, but I'd rather not be resisted by the creator of the universe. Not He's not passive about it. He resists. And, and uh, you know, God only gives grace to the humble. There's so much I could say about pride, but I just want to say th- one thing is that pride leads us, when pride leads us to rely on our self-righteousness, when sin comes around, and it will, we isolate ourselves, right? We don't, we compartmentalize our sin. We don't go to our brother for healing, right? James 5.16 tells us to confess our sins one to another that we may be healed, but our pride tells us I don't want to, to, you know, to show off in front of this person that I have weakness, that I'm not righteous, that I'm not there, right? Um, pride is the enemy of grace, and grace is all we have for our salvation. And second, everything we do must be relationally driven. You know, um, if, if pride is the enemy of grace, then obligation is the enemy of relationship. Um, did you know that, the, that Christianity, Christianity literally only has one command? Just one. Uh, there's only one law out of Christianity. It's found in John 13 in the story of the Last Supper. So Jesus breaks his bread and drinks his cup, and, you know, he's taking the place of Moses. There's a whole lot of symbolism here. Uh, but he cre- when he creates the new covenant, he says this in verse 34, A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's it. That's the only command we have to follow. Everything else that we see in the New Testament, everything written by John and Peter and James and everyone else, is an application of this command, right? You see it all the time. Paul will give a command, and he says, just as Christ, blank. You know, forgive as Christ gave you, forgave you. We aren't doing it because we're commanded to forgive. We're forgiving because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were enemies of God, he forgave us, right? Um, we don't have sex outside of marriage, even if it's between two consensual adults, not because we're commanded, but because we value our relationship with our present or future wife or husband so much because Christ values that relationship. Our present or future spouse was valued so much that the creator of the universe came to the earth and died just for them to have an opportunity to accept salvation. So we have a, we have this call of love to keep the marriage bed pure, right? You can filter everything that you feel is an obligation of, for your faith through this question. You know, how would Jesus love? It's, it's never been, what would Jesus do? That's never been the question. It's how would Jesus love? You know, because when love is the fuel of your relationship with God, obligation disappears. You know, um, but just so you know, being driven by love is much more demanding than being driven by obligation. There's no checklist. You know, you don't, you don't get to do your good deeds for the day and then hang it up at the end of the day, you know, when you're finished. Um, there's no finishing until you're dead. That's what a relationship is, till death do your part, right? But there's a freedom and a fulfillment waiting for you, right? And um, in Galatians 4, um, you know, you'll never know, know until you stop making Christianity about being commands. You stop that. 
and then follow a, a relationship here. In Galatians 4, it says, What I am saying is that as long as an heir is an underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time is set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born in the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Don't trade your inheritance for a bowl of beans, right? Don't give up your relationship for an obligation. Don't trade your Abba, Father, for a master. Don't let pride keep you from the greatest promise of of Christianity. He is our Abba Father. He cares for you so much that he gave you a salvation that you don't have to earn. You don't have to work for it. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. You know, there's nothing that Elizabeth can do that would make me love her any more than I love her right now. There's nothing that she could do that would make me love her any less than I love her right now. There's a lot that she can do to, to displease me, right? I may have to discipline her. I may have to put her in time out, right? I may, uh, you know, but nothing she does ever changes my heart towards by what she does. The, that grace, you know, would not apply if she were just my employee or if she were, if she were my servant or my slave, right? I wouldn't have that same feeling for her, but she's my daughter, right? And God is the same way. If you get out of line, he'll discipline you, you know, as any God, good father would, but your sin is already paid for. But the one way you can break relationship with God is to try to take credit for what he's already done, right? Don't follow in Israel's uh, example of unbelief and so perish. Don't cut yourself off from the promised land by working during our Sabbath, Give it a rest here. And I'm, I'm going to read one last passage, and then I'm done here. Um, in Romans chapter 3, this is one of, if not the most important chapters in all the Bible here. And this is one of the most important passages um, because it defines our relationship with Christ, right? Um, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed before unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And I just, I, I want everybody to just close your eyes, bow your heads, and I want to just, I want to pray for you. I just want, because, you know, we've we've heard this a lot. Even just this year, we, ha we heard Chris preach the you know through galatians through freedom you know we, we've heard we've heard this you know chris was talking about it earlier today from you know while he's leading worship you know there's a rest for you there's a rest for me and who god is and who christ is and what he did for us so if that's you if say say you're one of those people that's that's you've become you've see christianity as a burden it's become heavy for you that you've forgotten that it's not your righteousness it's not it's not about you 
It's about Christ and what he did. And you've been trying to, to fill this, to pay this debt that you can never pay. If that's you, I just want to pray for you today. And uh, I just want to, I want to encourage you that there's a rest. You can stop looking to yourself, whether that's through self-righteousness or through condemnation. Maybe you're one of those people that looks at that this, this gift that's been given to you and you feel the weight of debt. You feel the weight of the mercy and you feel the condemnation because you know you can never live up to the standard of Christ. You know that you what you've done is so evil and so wicked and how could a God love you? There's consequences for your actions, right? That's what you're always told. There's always consequences. But what God is saying is it's a free gift. There is now no condemnation in Christ. Who is he that condemns? No one. It is Christ Jesus who justifies. So I just want to pray right now and I just, just bow your heads and close your eyes. God, I pray right now that the spirit of adoption that would call us sons and daughters, that wouldn't call us slaves and objects of wrath, would just speak to our heart. Your spirit would just begin to dwell in us and cry out, Abba, Father, you are our heavenly Father, and we've, I've never had to repay my Father for a gift. So I pray now that we would never try to repay this gift that you've given to us, that we would learn to rest that we would make it about our love and not our obligation, that we would walk humbly, God, that we would love mercy. I pray that you would just be here in our hearts and speak to us. And if that's one of us, if one of us today, even just one, if this message was just for one person who felt condemnation, who felt self-righteousness, who felt the weight of the mercy, God, I pray that you would just remind them that your burden is free, your burden is light. God. Who is then that, that, that condemns no one? It is Christ Jesus who justifies. That's Romans 8. If you've never read Romans 8, you need to read it today. Go home and read it today. God, I pray right now that your spirit would just begin to move, begin to move in this place and remind us that we are heirs and co-heirs of Christ and that there are no expectations other than the love that's been placed on us to give it out to others. God, just remind us today. In your name we pray. Amen.